You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Uh, it was back in uh, middle of July that we were looking at um, this idea of serving without expectations. Um, and it comes from the parable that we find in Luke chapter 17. Um, and the context of this parable, and we won't go into to reading this entire passage again, but the context of the parable was Jesus talking about mounting temptations to sin, um, just indirectly temptation, but then also temptations that come from other people that we potentially spend time with, not yielding to those temptations, confronting sin in the lives of others when we see somebody falling into sin, that we, we love them enough to help address that and pull them out of sin, but then also he was talking about the concept of forgiving each other uh, when we sin, uh, being quick to forgive, being quick, quick to uh, extend reconciliation, um, and, and even doing so to, to the, you know, uh, time after time after time, right? He concludes in verse 4 saying that if we're sinned against seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And so the idea being there that and we're just always in a state of forgiveness, that it's normal for Christians to forgive others. And so our summary sentence for that week, Jesus calls us to ordinary Christian service of protecting others from sin, rebuking others when they stumble, forgiving others when they repent, and doing all of this faithfully, whether we ever feel appreciated for it or not. So again, he's giving us these concepts in the beginning of chapter 17. Temptation to sin are coming. Uh, woe to the individual who causes other people to sin, right? And so he's laying out what, what really is ordinary Christian life, that we serve others by protecting them from sin. So the way we make choices and decisions, it's meant to encourage others away from sin. When we see people in sin, we're quick to try to pull them out of sin because we love them. We're rebuking them lovingly to get them back on track. We're forgiving others when they repent. And then the parable comes into play because the apostles respond in verse 5 and they say, Lord, increase our faith as though we don't have enough faith to live this way, right? And Jesus responds and says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. The idea being you have plenty of faith because even if you had just the littlest faith, like mustard seed, you could move mountains. Surely you have enough faith right now to live this ordinary type life. And, and that's where we look at it. And we maybe say, that's not ordinary for the Christians I know. But Jesus is saying this is ordinary Christian life or what ordinary Christian life should be, that we are in the habitual habit of, of forgiving others, protecting others, um, serving others. And that we should have enough faith because saving faith, coming to Christ in faith, is enough faith to live this way. But then he encourages his disciples to live this way, whether they ever get appreciated for it or not. Look what it says in verse 7. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The parable point, doing the above, those, those ordinary Christian things, it's about faithful obedience. But be careful that faithful obedience doesn't create a prideful need within your heart 
for appreciation. To keep you serving in these ways as though carrying out these duties commanded to you warrants your celebration. Jesus shares this parable and says, what master would celebrate his servant for simply doing what was commanded? These are, these are basic commands, right? There's not going to be a party thrown for us when we carry out the basic commands of Christianity. But our pride, oftentimes, we will respond in obedience and then look around and say, did anybody see that? Did anybody notice what I just did there? And we expect a celebration. We expect a party. And Jesus is saying, nope, just carry on with your business, right? Unworthy servants who were grateful and thankful to be serving in the kingdom. So the application for us was one, definitely do those ordinary things that we're called to do, to forgive and to love and to serve and to protect others from sin, but then also to keep our motives in check, that we're not doing these things to be celebrated. Because Jesus says oftentimes the celebration won't come, but we stay faithful doing these things. Jump over to Luke 8 now. Luke chapter 8 is where we talked about the good soil and the sower and the seed. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now you skip down to verse 11. He says, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Our summary sentence, the impact God's word has on my heart is directly tied to the condition of my heart which means I need to be fully aware of the enemies that wage war against my ability to hear his word in life-changing ways. What's Jesus' point here? Well, his point is that the condition of our heart will determine how effective God's word is in our life, so we have to hear it well. We have to hear it well, and so he introduces these enemies to us hearing well. He talks about the, the hard heart, the individual who is resistant to God's word to the point where, this, where Satan can basically just come in with his forces and just snatch it away, right? Like we forget it very quickly. It's not there very long. We sit in a sermon or we sit in a Bible study. We hear God's word. We're exposed to it. But I mean, there's just nothing in regards to it taking root in our life. It falls on this hard, packed-in ground where it can't penetrate into the soil, and the birds just come and eat it very quickly. But then he also introduces this idea of rocky ground, where there is an initial response, but there's no real depth to the root, right? So it, it gets excited when it hears God's word. It responds, kind of shows a little bit of uh, oomph when it, when it comes out of the ground and starts to try to spring forth fruit. But then the sun comes up, and the trials come, and the difficulties come. Maybe there is no celebration when you try to leave uh, a sermon and you're, and you're obedient. There is no celebratory type uh, deal that happens. And so the trials that come instead kill it. I mean, it just kills the faith. It kills it, chokes it out. There is no long-term response to the word. There's an initial jump, but then it just fades away. 
But then he also introduces this idea of thorns. And he says it's the busyness of life, where, where life just chokes out the response. There, there's a desire to respond to God's word, but there's also a desire for a lot of other things too. And there's just not enough ground and nutrients to go around for everything in this person's life. So yes, there's an attempt to be obedient to God's word, but then I've got all this other stuff going on too that's getting my time and attention and resources, and eventually the response to the word just dies out as well. It can't, it can't really grow and it can't really thrive. The application for us in, in looking at this parable, are we hearing God's word well? And that's where I've, I've given you this challenge, and I want to give it to you again to just ponder. Are you doing anything or not doing anything recently based on time in God's word? Is there anything in your life that looks different today? And let's, let's really narrow it down because we've been saying this for the past four weeks. Is there anything in your life that's different over the past four weeks? For those of you that have been with us, anything different? Because you've heard the word for four weeks now. Is there anything that you can tangibly say, I think differently or I do differently because of God's word speaking to me? The Holy Spirit convicted me and there's application that's taking place. I'm doing things or thinking about things differently now because of what I've, I've learned and been exposed to in God's word. That's a sobering question that we all need to ask ourselves because if not, it's not that the word has been ineffectively uh, read, right? Those of you that haven't been with us that have been under other teachers, it's not that God's word is ineffective. What we're seeing here is that it's the, it's the soil, right? The, the word gets, it's the same seed that's being spread on this soil. The difference is the way it's received. The heart condition determines the effectiveness. How effective has God's word been in your life? Could I preach better? Could I teach better? Absolutely. But our heart has to be right to receive God's word for it to have impact. Right? You can't just roll out the most effective teacher possible and then get a return on God's word. No, God's return doesn't return void. Our heart condition is the key here. How well are you hearing? Are you doing anything differently? Are you thinking any ways differently than you were four weeks ago because of being in God's word? Let's jump over to Luke chapter 14 now. Luke chapter 14. We looked at the idea of building towers and starting wars and following Jesus, which don't seem to have a whole lot in common at first. But Jesus introduces these parables to help us see, really, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him. Disciples are called to surrender those things that we cannot possibly keep and that cannot ultimately satisfy for a far greater inheritance that we cannot possibly lose, making the gains of following Christ worth all of the, all of the cost. It says in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him. He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, count the cost here. Is it worth following me or not? Just like you would count the cost before building a tower, right? You wouldn't start with the foundation and then continue to assess whether you wanted to build or not. He says, no, you would, you would start at the very beginning and decide, do we have the funds? Do we have the resources to build this tower? The general would determine, do we have enough resources and men to win this war or do we need to negotiate peace before we ever start? Jesus says, do the same thing with following me. Determine if, if it's worth it to give up what you may have to give up, the cost that may, uh, you may incur. Is it worth it to follow me? Does the cost outweigh it? The parable point is that a careful calculation is needed when choosing to follow Jesus, understanding that by choosing to follow Jesus, there will be at times what feels like great loss. But the great gains enjoyed on the other side of the loss makes the decision to choose him worth it. For some of you, you've been believers for a long time. Others, not as long. For our kids, certainly not as long because you're not, you're not old enough yet to say that long, right? Count the cost and, and realize that the gain that's going to be incurred is going to be far outweighing the, the, the loss that you give up potentially. Is there loss in following Jesus? Are there things that we give up? Absolutely, right? For our kids, as you're growing up, there are things that, that we're calling you to be different with, right? There's, there's things that we're calling you not to do that some of your friends at school are doing. We're saying, don't do those things. Don't yield to those things. Don't give to those things. Don't, don't say yes to what the world says yes to. There is certainly things that we give up, but as we talked about during this sermon, the, 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 the gains far outweigh that. And really, when we figure out what it is we're giving up, we learn that we're not really giving up anything. The things that Jesus calls us away from are, are harmful to us. They're dangerous to us. Even when he talks about hating your mother and father and, and following him, we said that he's not actually calling us to minimize our love for other people. Because there's too many other passages that tell us to, to be obedient and submissive and honoring to our parents to love our spouse as well. So he's not saying don't, don't love other people. He's just saying, think about what it looks like to love other people so well and then love me more than that. Love me more than you love everything else in this world. Right? So he's, he's calling us to, to maximize our attention in following him, to keep the important things in our life important, but not supreme, to not make idols out of these relationships. To be willing to pick up our cross and follow him, meaning to keep trials in the context of a fallen world. That God created this world, but sin entered into it and messed everything up. But God still controls everything in this world, right? So we can, we can find comfort and hope in knowing that God still rules and reigns. And he uses those trials for good purposes. He promises his children that all things work together for good. So we can, we can pick up our cross and follow him knowing that it's a good thing. We talked about the things that we gain from following Jesus that far outweigh what we, what we lose. We talked about how we get perspective for this world. We get a hope for the future. We even get real purpose for the present, right? Like we have purpose in our life. We're not just here by accident. We're not just here to live out our life and then to die and be done. No, God has called us to something far greater. I challenged you as application from this week to, to really ponder what do you see as the benefits for following Jesus? that make it worth it. 
Because when we focus on those benefits, it keeps us following him. For our youth, you're going to grow up and you're going to leave your parents' house. And the choices to continue following Jesus are going to continue to come. And at some point, your parents aren't going to be there to keep telling you that you have to come to church, that you have to follow Jesus, that you can't spend time with certain people, and you can't participate in certain activities. At some point, those, those choices will fall to you. And it's at that point where you're going to have to decide, is the benefit of following Jesus greater than the, than the gains that come from not? The temporary gains that come from not following Jesus, are those greater than everything that I get from following Jesus? I challenge you, know the benefits Ponder the benefits so that you keep following Jesus. Let's jump over to Luke 10 now. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. As Christians, we ought to read God's word with a desire to maximize rather than minimize the way of life it calls us to, changing our question from who must I serve to how may I serve. Remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We said that the context of this parable is this discussion about lawyers and laws and and what, what the law says. I had the unfortunate privilege of having to go to court this week, um, not for anything I did. I was called as a, a, a potential testimony to a situation, and I got to see a little bit of this kind of play out in that setting because the judge is talking, and lawyers are present, and some questions about the law came up, and the, judge, the, the lawyer asked the judge a question, can, can we do this? And you could tell the lawyer didn't want to do it right? It wasn't, or the, the judge didn't want to allow it. It wasn't going to, to be to the benefit of everybody, but he was pondering it. And then one of his people, one of the, the, um, the other people in the courtroom raised their hand and said, judge, remember what the law says about this. This would then have to happen if you do this. And the judge looked at him and said, we're not going to do that. Like, we're not going to do what you've asked because I've just been reminded what the law says, and that's not going to be helpful. And so it kind of changed the trajectory of what was, what was happening in the court scene there. This lawyer stands up and says, Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, lawyer, tell us what the law says. And the lawyer says, well, it says that you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you have to love everybody else well too. And Jesus says, yeah, you've said correctly. Go do that, and you'll live. And then the lawyer says, well, who's my neighbor? Like, who do I actually have to do this well to? Because you would have expected Jesus, if he's done this well, to look at him and say, buddy, you've already lived well enough. You have eternal life. But he says, nope, you got to go do this if you want eternal life. And so the lawyer says, well, who do I need to do this to? We talked this week about how the correct question would have been, what if I haven't done this well because I know I haven't? right? Not who is my neighbor. It's, hey, I haven't done this well. What do I need to do? Then the gospel comes in and Jesus says, you can't do it well, right? The only hope is me who's come to do it for you. 
But no, the, 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 the lawyer says, who's my neighbor? How can I minimize these law standards to be manageable for me to do it? And that's when Jesus gives the, the Good Samaritan parable. By the end of it, he's saying, who, who was he a good neighbor to? Who, 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 who was the good neighbor in this parable? Obviously, it's the Samaritan. It's the one who the lawyer would have hated as a Jew. The idea, the parable point, is that rather than trying to determine who is your neighbor, you're required to serve, you see yourself as a neighbor to all and be willing and ready to serve everyone. That was Jesus' point to the lawyer. It's not, hey, let's narrow it down and determine who our neighbor is. It's see yourself as a neighbor to everybody. Be willing to love and to forgive and to serve all those around you. Thankfully, we don't have to do that for eternal life because we can't. We said that Jesus ultimately is the good Samaritan for us. He's the one who, when we hated him, he served us well. He came to be perfect for us. He died in our place. It's what we will celebrate today with the Lord's Supper. He has been the good Samaritan for us. I challenge you from an application standpoint, are you reading the Bible well with a desire to maximize rather than minimize the expectations we find in it? Do you read the Bible as a Christian or like this lawyer? Do you read the Bible as a Christian who loves Christ and says, okay, this is what I'm called to. Let me do it fully. Let me do it to the best of my abilities. Or do we read it and say, how can we twist this and minimize this so I can get by with doing as little as possible? We don't, we don't probably say that out loud, but a lot of times we approach God's word that way. We hear it, we're convicted by it, and we say, okay, how can I do that to the minimal level to get by, to check the box? Who do I have to do this to? Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, you be a good neighbor to everybody. Lastly, we looked at Luke 12 last week. Luke chapter 12. Verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. He will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have not left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. What that servant and and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not know what was deserved or did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We said Jesus is surely coming when we do not expect it. Therefore, we must anticipate his return daily. 
with a mindset of preparation and service to avoid being surprised and to enjoy his commendation versus his commendation or condemnation. The parable point was the return of Jesus is certain while the timing of it remains unclear. So faithful servants must prepare for his return at any moment by always being prepared and remaining actively faithful in serving him. So Jesus walks us through this series of parables where he's talking about servants who were uh, dressed and ready and the lights are on waiting for their master to come back so that they can serve him. He talks about the, the homeowner who is prepared for the thief and doesn't leave his house. He talks about the individual who is doing things faithfully that ultimately Jesus gives more things to do when he comes back because he's been faithful for the time being right now. Then he goes into talking about those who, who didn't think Jesus was coming back and tried to use that as an opportunity for, for worldly pleasures, how they're going to be held accountable for what they knew. This idea of, of what you know uh, gives you the level of accountability that you're expected to follow, and Jesus will hold us accountable when he comes back. There's a readiness for his return that's implied and, and demanded here. And it shows us that it's the antidote for, for really following through with everything that we've been talking about these past few weeks. How do we stay urgent in our service? How do we stay urgent in listening to God's word? Well, we believe that Jesus is coming back. We talked last week about how here at our church, Sovereign Hope, we want to be a body of believers who believe in Jesus's return and talk about it regularly. Like it's our motivation for living faithfully because we believe he's coming back. Meaning that we make daily decisions that reflect we believe he's coming at any moment. We try to be ready now because we know it'll impact how we experience him when he returns. You've got some servants that are being served by Jesus when he comes back. The servants that are found ready, Jesus invites them to recline at table and he becomes the waiter for them. Others who aren't ready when he comes back, he talks about them being numbered with the unfaithful. Talks about our level of service in eternity being impacted by how well we serve him now. One quote that I wanted to give you from last week's sermon again. Once a professing believer starts thinking his master is not returning, his life begins to deteriorate. Once a professing believer starts thinking that Jesus is not returning, his life begins to deteriorate. Just like this guy in this story who says, my master is not coming. He begins to beat the other servants. He begins to act as though he's the master, basically. If we stop believing that Jesus is coming back, it opens the doorway to sin. We have to keep our hearts and minds focused on the fact that our master is returning. So that's where we've been over the last five weeks in our sermon series, in the parables. We've seen that we're called to serve, to do it faithfully, whether we're celebrated for it or not. We're to have open hearts, receptive to God's teaching, looking to make application. We're to count the cost and to keep counting the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus and realize that the gains outweigh the loss. We talked about not minimizing what we're reading in God's word, but maximizing our response, not asking who do we have to serve, who can we serve, and then doing all of this with the mindset that Jesus is coming back. There's an urgency and an intentionality to how we respond to God's word. So if we were to take everything that we've said over the past five weeks and then everything that I've tried to package for you this morning as a quick recap, what do we need to remember and what do we need to do over, these last, over, over what we've seen over these past five weeks? Three quick things to remember, three things to do as you leave today. 
And if you're faithful to do these things, if you were asked in a couple of weeks, is your life any different? You could say, yes, because I did what we talked about at Application Sunday, right? What should I remember? Number one, we need to determine that following Jesus by hearing and doing his word well is worth the cost. That's something that we're called to believe. So our adults all the way down to our kids, we've got to get to the point where we believe this. We believe that following Jesus, hearing and doing his word is worth the cost. That his word is relevant. Some of you have to come and sit here because your parents tell you to. And it's this thing that you endure every week and you can't wait for it to be over. We need to change the mentality. We need to change the mindset. Following Jesus is worth it. His word is worth it. We count the cost. Number two, we need to maximize rather than minimize our efforts to serve Jesus in obedience with urgency because he is coming soon. We don't hear the word taught and then think, how can we get by with with a little response? No, we hear the word taught and we say, how can I maximize that in my life? Don't be like the lawyer who's looking for a loophole. Don't be like the lawyer who's looking for a way to get around what God's word says. Because that's what lawyers are paid to do, right? To find loopholes in the law. How can we get around this? No, be the one who reads it and has a good soiled heart that says, give it to me and give it to me deep. Like I want the word to take a deep root in my life so that I can spring forth lasting fruit. Number three, we need to remain faithful in spite of mounting temptations, increasing trials, and missed opportunities to be appreciated. We've got to have a mindset that we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep following Jesus because we've counted the cost. It's worth building the tower. It's worth going to war. No matter what I face, as sin, temptations mount, we say Jesus is better than this sin. When trials come into our life, we say Jesus is going to use this for good. It's not a reason to wilt in the sun and fall away. And as we're developing this mentality and we're staying faithful, we're saying no to sin, we're, we're, we're enduring trials and coming out on the other side, we don't look around and say, where's the party for me? We don't, we don't look for the celebration. And then when we don't see it, crumple and say, I guess I'm not going to keep doing this. If nobody else notices, why should I keep doing this? No, we work unto God, not unto men. Right? Men are going to miss opportunities for appreciation. I led off our school year this year talking to our teachers, and I said, parents are going to miss opportunities to appreciate what you do. If your endurance this year is tied to parents seeing all that you put forth in the classroom, you're going to crumple before fall break. No, we've got to endure and be faithful because Jesus has called us to it and not expect the appreciation piece to sustain us. These are things to remember from these past five weeks, things to do, and all three of them are tied together. I want to challenge you. Every time you hear the word taught, moving forward from today, every time you hear the word taught, plan to walk away with one action point to put into practice. Even the worst teachers of God's word, unless it is just blatant heresy, you could pull one action point out just from them reading God's word to you. You could come up with your own action point, even if their sermon's just completely off and terrible. Come up with one action plan from every time you sit down and hear God's word taught, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a Bible study, a lot, a lot of you probably have settings at work where somebody's leading a Bible study at one point or another. 
What if you just develop the mentality that I'm going to have such good soil that anytime the seed is being spread, I'm going to open my heart to it and I'm going to look to do something with it. I'm going to come away with one action point. Every time God's word is taught, I'm going to do one thing from that sermon, one thing from that Bible study, one thing from that devotional. Number two, when you put that action point into practice, plan to do it with maximum effort as a new way of life, right? Don't minimize the action plan. Don't say, well, you know, I'll try to be a good neighbor based on the Good Samaritan. I'm going to try to think of one, 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 one person that's my neighbor. No, like you come away saying, I'm going to do this to everybody. Like, like the way of life now is I don't minimize it, I maximize it. When you put that action point into practice, plan to do it with maximum effort as a new way of life. And then number three, as you live out that new action point, be prepared and content with never being acknowledged for it until Jesus comes back. Just go into it with that mindset. Hey, I'm going to be obedient to what I've just heard from God's word. And nobody may ever notice that you did. Be okay with that. Because what we saw last week is that Jesus is coming back and he will identify the faithful servants. He will identify the ones who were ready. He will identify the ones that have been prepared. He will identify the ones that have got their lamps burning. The ones who don't, he'll recognize those as well. So don't get caught up on, are people noticing the things that I'm doing? Am I getting any appreciation for the good choices that I'm making? Because you may never, you may never get appreciated for it here. Know that your master's coming back. He's going to look and say, hey, you've been faithful. I got a whole lot more I want you to be faithful with as we go into eternity. Just start approaching God's word that way moving forward. Anytime it's taught, you come away with one action plan, one action point, and you do it to the max, and you do it whether you ever get appreciated or acknowledged for it. Let's turn our attention in closing now to the Lord's Supper. As we partake, it's an opportunity for us to to really apply publicly, as we said, the things that, that we're learning, that we're doers of the word and not hearers only, that we're still saying yes to Jesus, that he's still supreme in our life, and that we're still following him. We're still counting the cost and saying, yes, he is worth it. Yes, he is worth following. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. By partaking of the Lord's Supper today, we are proclaiming the gospel to one another. Because the gospel is Jesus coming to be perfect on our behalf. Right? The correct follow-up question for the lawyer was, what do we do if we haven't kept the law like it says? Right? The answer is Jesus came to keep the law for us. He came to be perfect for us. He came to die in our place. He came to shed his blood on our behalf because we deserve to die. We deserve God's wrath. Jesus takes it for us. That's what's represented in the Lord's Supper today. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his life represented in the the wafer. It's all about his blood represented in the juice, both given to us on, on behalf of us so that we can be saved, so that we can inherit eternal life. Now, I think it's always worth mentioning that that by partaking today, it doesn't save us, right? This isn't a work or an act that we do to save ourselves. This is a picture of what has already happened in our life, right? 
It's a picture of what's already happened. And, and, I, and I've said this before. Um, thankfully, Jesus said we could partake of the Lord's Supper until he comes back and not get baptized every Sunday because that would take a long time if we just rebaptized ourselves every Sunday, right? That's the other ordinance that we do. It too represents what's already happened in our life, right? We died to our sin, raised to walk in newness of Christ. We're saying the same things with the Lord's Supper. We're able to do it in unity, though, as we do it together, right? We're able to do this together. And so we're public, pro- publicly proclaiming yes to Jesus once again. And you're invited to do that with us today. Whether you're a member of our church or not, everyone who is a believer is invited to partake today. We've got the elements in the back right outside on the table. If you didn't grab one coming in, you're welcome to dismiss yourself as we uh, have just a time of reflection here shortly. We'd love for you to partake again, whether you're a member or not. We ask that believers only partake of this because this is something for believers. This is believers saying that I have accepted Christ's work and I'm still putting my faith and trust in him. It encourages us to see that. It encourages us to know that we're not doing this by ourselves, that we're in this together, we are unified, and we do it until Jesus comes back as he commanded. When he comes back, we will eat and dine with him for all eternity. We look forward to that. Let's pray together. God, as we take just a few moments now to, to reflect and to, to pray and to worship you individually, um, Lord, we just come to you right now and we thank you and praise you that you did send Jesus because we did not keep the law. We brought sin into the world and you brought life right back in. Thank you for Jesus' life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for the hope of his return. Lord, it's worth the cost of following you because we, we come to realize that the best that we experience in this world is not the best that we will ever experience. The absolute best day pales in comparison to the first day of eternity. Lord, thank you that we can celebrate the life, death, and resurrection. Thank you that you have saved us and we enjoy a new relationship with you. God, I pray that we would always count the cost to be worthy following you over the things of this world. Lord, help your word to continue to take root in our hearts. We want to be found faithful when you come back. We know faithfulness comes from yielding to your word. When the seed is spread, we let it take root. We spring forth fruit. Help us to seek to do that faithfully. Help us to do it when trials come. Help us to do it when we're not appreciated for it. Help us to just love you and to keep waiting for you. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.